Welcome to the VU Impact, a podcast discussing important issues in public service. Brought to you by the Department of Public Administration at Villanova University. So welcome everyone. My name is Dr. Katherine Wilson and I'm Chair of the Department of Public Administration at Villanova University. And I'm thrilled to be here today with Ansi Yadam, um, who is the Global Procurement Lead for Sterile Injectables Operating Unit at Pfizer for our podcast um, for the VU Impact on actively working together, the next frontier for business, government, and individuals. So first, I just wanted to welcome you, Ansa, and to um, tell you that we're excited to hear your conversation today. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm excited as well. Very excited to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Great. So I, Ansa, I wanted to start out by just asking you if you could share with us a little bit about your professional background. I know that sure. you worked at Pfizer for almost 20 years in a range of different capacities. And um, I was wondering if you could share with us some of the things you've learned from your experience there and what are some of the highlights? Sure, no, I'm happy to. You know, it's, uh, it's funny when you hear almost 20 years of anything. Uh, and so to hear that in reference to my, my time at Pfizer, it sometimes sounds strange, but no, it's been, it's been a wonderful 20 years. Uh, I started my career at Pfizer in uh, what we called then clinical research and development, which today we call global product development. Uh, but basically started in the patient recruitment division, um, focusing on helping our clinical scientists recruit uh, individuals for clinical trials and really supporting our investigators. Uh, I, I quickly moved into uh, our investigator uh, grant contracting division, which is still within clinical research and development. And essentially, that's a, a department that's focused on contracting with the doctors that run our clinical trials, right? We're a pharmaceutical company. Uh, we research, manufacture, uh, and commercialize medicine. And during a research phase, we have investigators across the country slash world that we work with. Uh, and in order to uh, engage with them, we obviously have to have contracts in place. And so I, I was part of, part of a team that did that. And then moved into a group that focused on clinical outsourcing. So we work with many CROs, contract research organizations, to do the work that we do in the clinical space. And so I moved into that group. And it was great for me to get that experience uh, in, in a few different areas of the, the clinical development space. I then moved into our manufacturing division, um, specifically our manufacturing procurement division, and uh, supported uh, the procurement and strategic sourcing of our packaging materials typically our parental or injectable packaging material. Uh, ultimately got the opportunity to have responsibility for that packaging material team. And shortly after that, Pfizer acquired Legacy Wyatt, which, is, which was the company I worked with first. Um, and I had the opportunity to lead global packaging material for, um, for Pfizer. That was a wonderful experience because we went from having, oh, maybe, maybe 10 or so sites that I interacted with strongly Legacy Wyatt to over 60 sites um, that I Amazing. interacted with, uh, with in, in the Pfizer uh, manufacturing realm. And so I was traveling all around the world. I was um, getting great experiences uh, and collaborating on many different projects to improve supply uh, for our sites. From there, I, I took a different role uh, on the procurement leadership team. It, had, it was a very non-procurement role, Catherine, on the procurement leadership team as I was focused on uh, professional development, um, communications. I had responsibility for innovation our Six Sigma programs and supplier diversity. I was, my title was director of strategic initiatives, but it was a very encompassing role. Um, that then from there led me to go to the indirect side of procurement where I, I was responsible for professional services, um, consulting, legal, um, or business development transactions as it relates to um, the procurement of those services. Uh, from there, I then went to the commercial side of the business. You can see I've rotated to all different areas of our company, mm -hmm. and I was the, the strategy lead for our vaccines commercial division. And then I've come into this role, uh, which I serve as the procurement lead within our manufacturing division uh, for our global sterile injectables operating unit. I mean, it sounds like just an incredible uh, work experience and background. And I know you say it's hard to imagine 20 years, but in 20 years, you've done quite a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I appreciate that. No, it's been, it's been a great ride. And you can see, you know, you, you asked me to talk about some of the things I've learned from my experiences. But you can see I've, I've gone through uh, the different areas of the company. And, um, 
you know, I can recall, Catherine, when I first started, and you can imagine, you know, just out of college and, you know, they're, you're looking up at the senior leaders in that particular division at that time in clinical research. And, you know, there, there are the, 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 um, the gods, if you will, right, to the young junior uh, mm-hmm. colleague that I was of those divisions. And I remember as I rotated to different groups, one of the things that always struck me was how the gods, if you will, of certain areas just weren't relevant for another mm. area, right? When you, the, the people who uh, were the senior leaders and revered in one division were, were virtually unknown in another. Um, and, um, and whether you're in manufacturing or research and development, then you get, you know, to commercial, it's the same. You know, d- different players, different people who are, are the key uh, stakeholders and are, are key people you're interacting with, yet we're all intertwined, right? Yes. And now all facets of the company are needed uh, to make yes. it work and work well. So for Pfizer, we're a, uh, a company that needs to research and develop, manufacture, and then commercialize our medicines. And then we obviously have enabling functions that support, like human resources, legal, procurement, finance. Um, we can research and develop, develop a product, but it goes nowhere uh, if there isn't a manufacturing division to make it. And it goes nowhere uh, if there isn't a commercial division to make sure that people are aware of it and can get it out uh, to them. So I think, you know, one of the biggest things I learned mm-hmm. is just how intertwined we can be um, mm-hmm. and, and how intertwined we must be to make things work, yet how often we're so separate and our knowledge of those, um, how those sects inter, intersect, if you will. Um, that's, that's one of the big learnings I can, I can, I can reference. Yeah, I, I really like that, that term that you're using, um, that we're all intertwined. I think that's beautifully stated. And I, I can't agree with you more because I think you see a similar trend taking place in, in all sectors, not simply just the private sector, but even in academia where people become so expert in their field that they yes. may not have, you know, knowledge of what everyone else around them is doing. So um, I think that that's really well stated and goal for us to aspire to. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, that was one of the things that struck me, uh, Catherine. You know, as I started my career, I just I have a lust for learning, and uh, I I wanted to understand how all the pieces came together. And I deliberately re- remember, I should say, I remember deliberately thinking that. Uh, when I started in my career, I wanted to connect the dots. And so it's just been, it's been great to have the opportunity to do that. Well, that's, that's fantastic. And I want to have you kind of bring us through the process of you connecting the dots, because you have a very interesting educational background too. You studied economics as an undergraduate student at Swarthmore College. Um, How did the study of economics prepare you for, as you were mentioning, connecting the dots, seeing how things are all intertwined um, in the work that you're currently engaged in at Pfizer. Sure. Yeah, th- I think this uh, this conversation, Catherine, is a real walk down memory lane. You're taking me back to my college days, which <laughs> also feel. <laughs> it also I'm with you. Like I'm with you, Ansa. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you. <laughs> exactly right, making me feel like an old man right here. But no, in, in some respects, I can say that my college major has very little to do with what I do in life now. Uh, right, I, I can talk about Ricardian equivalents and production possibility frontiers and opportunity costs and the difference curves, but I think it would drive everyone around me, you know, to disperse. I'd have no friends. Right? There'd, be nobody, <laughs> there'd be no one who wants to hear that. Right. So many respects, I don't apply any of those um, uh, in my in my work today. But but in other respects, you know, Catherine, I think uh, it is very relevant. I think I, I actually apply economics every single day. I, I recall being in awe of economics during my freshman year. It sounded hmm. so serious. It was an imposing, you know, word economics. Um, and so there was this wide-eyed feeling that I had as I began to study. Um, and it was almost trepidation as I, as I started to study economics at Swarthmore College, right? <laughs> <laughs> daunting. I mean, it's very daunting. It, it was. It really was. <laughs> and then I remember my first economics professor at Swarthmore, was Professor Mark Cooperberg. And I remember him breaking things down on the first day by saying, economics is the study of allocating scarce resources amongst mm. competing choices, uh, yeah. amongst competing uses, maybe he used to say. And I, and it's, and I could recite that, you know, stop me anywhere. Wow. Right on the street, you know, what, what's, what's economics? And I would say it that way. It, it just struck me because of how simple it was and how that, the way he stated it, applied more broadly than hearing experts on MSNBC you know, comment, commenting on what the economy was going to do. 
Yes. It certainly included that, but it was broader than that. Yes. Um, and so, you know, in, in my role today, you know, at Pfizer, my day job, if you will, you know, I have a multi-million dollar functional budget that I use to operate my division, you know, pay colleagues, enable travel, enable training, provide development opportunities, et cetera. Um, and there are many things that I and my leadership team would like to do, but there's a limited amount of things that we can do in order to, in, in order to operate within budget. So, you know, I need to think about the opportunity costs of the choices that we make and try to select the best points along in different curves for growth and development options for our colleagues and think about what our department um, uh, and colleagues, what we're good at and what our production possibility frontiers are, and what the, the production possibility frontiers are of our supply base as they, um, they support us. So, so mm -hmm. you know, I wouldn't talk about them in those terms as I'm executing my work every day, uh, but I really do think uh, it's almost been ingrained in the way that I think. And I think often, Catherine, in the way that many people think, right? Many, many cases, people are executing and making economic decisions, and they don't even know it. It's just that they haven't been trained in the lingo, but they certainly have been trained via life on the concept. Yeah, I, that's, um, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, when you think about it, economics is categorized as one of the social sciences. So that's right. understanding human behavior and why we're motivated to make certain decisions becomes very integral to um, economics itself. So it is, in fact, very human driven and we need to understand the human person. And so having that knowledge and learning how to allocate resources and understanding different interests and desires and how you make good decisions based on opportunity cost is so important when you're running a unit or running a corporation or running a nonprofit organization. That's right, absolutely, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more, I couldn't agree more. And that's where, you know, as we were just you know talking about, I think we're all economists in, in, uh, in many yes. ways, whether we, you know, we wear the, the banner hat or not, we're all economists in many ways. Yes. So you are also a 2014 graduate of Villanova's Master of Public Administration program and a <laughs> of our Pi Alpha Alpha Honor Society, which is, which is fantastic. And um, so you. I wanted to ask you what inspired you to obtain an MPA degree. You're in the business world. You know, many people would think, well, you'll get your Master of Business Administration. So what made you, what inspired you to obtain an MPA as opposed to an MBA? And how has it helped um, you in your current work at Pfizer? Yes, no, you're, I think you're, I appreciate that question. And I think you're right, right? Most folks in, in my field, in my company, or I should really say in my line of work, would go and get their MBA. And it was something that I seriously considered. You know, I considered everything. As, as I mentioned earlier, I have a lust for learning. I, I just love to learn. Uh, I, I have a curious mind. And so I considered everything from uh, Catherine getting my master's in history to my PhD in history, to my MPA, to my MBA. Um, and it was a, it was a really uh, tough deliberation that I went through. Uh, but I, I also enjoyed that deliberation as I was just thinking about mm -hmm. what, what would be, um, what would be, you know, most exciting for me. You know, I think what I came back to was that I really feel like I get my MBA on the job every day, right? I have the the opportunity to work uh, and the privilege to work for uh, a large Fortune 100 company. Uh, and based on the nature of our work, we are dealing with, you know, all of the, the, the concepts that you would learn in business school every day. It was that director of strategic initiatives role that I had um, that really opened my eyes up, Catherine, to the idea of intersectoral collaboration and the need for um, the benefit, if you will, of of different sectors, private and public sectors, working together strongly. One of the responsibilities I had uh, was to uh, lead the supplier diversity team for Pfizer. Uh, and in that role, I and my team often were representing Pfizer uh, in external spaces, in external events, uh, speaking, um, participating on panels, um, interacting with uh, third parties, uh, representing Pfizer. And it showed me, uh, in addition to that, and you know, the fact that we have targets that our government gives us um, for uh, hitting su diverse supplier spend, small business spend, it just struck me of how, again, different facets, kind of like we talked about earlier, different silos are focused on their work, but not recognizing how the work affects uh, others who are um, sideways, lateral to them. Yes, yes. Um, and the, the broad connection. And so I said, 
you know, I could go and get my MBA. I certainly would be interested in the topics. Uh, I think I, I wanted to go and, and do my PhD uh, for history at the time. I had mm. just had my second child, though, and I knew that wasn't practical. And so after I deliberated many different things, I said, you know, there's something about uh, the public and private sectors mm-hmm. optimizing and how they interact. And I want to yes. study more about that. And so it was a privilege to become, you know, a student at Villanova in the MPA program to, uh, to have you as one of my professors, uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, along with uh, w- with all of the other members of the MPA team at Villanova, but it was a, it was great. It was great for me, and it was a, a way for me to learn about a different line of work, uh, mm-hmm. but one that I felt needed to more strongly connect to the work that I do. Well, you you raise a really that's that's a great um, response, and I thoroughly enjoyed having you in class. And I think you you raise a really um, great point, which is you know sometimes when you're working and you're enmeshed in the work that you're doing it might actually be um, a good idea to look outside of the workspace to, to get new fresh ideas that may not come from that sector to bring with it some new energy and some dynamism. And so, you know, your whole discussion about intersectoral collaboration, I think is, is so fitting for our topic today. Um, the title of which is actively working together, the next frontier for business, government, and individuals. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about what intersectoral collaboration means and maybe just some examples of where we see it. Sure, sure. And, and I think on that note, you know, uh, when we talk about intersectoral collaboration, working together, you know, I, I'm here in this conversation that we're having today, we're really not appearing as the envoy of Pfizer and the envoy of Villanova. Right. But I'm appearing as, as UNSA, right? The human being, right. a father, a husband, a friend, a brother, a son, a U.S. Right. citizen, a global citizen, a Pfizer employee, a Villanova <laughs> you know, et cetera, right? And I, I'm kind of running off the list mentally yes. because I think that's how yes. we need to think of ourselves, right? Often, you know, folks, you know, will ask you a question, what do you do? Oh, oh well, and you go right to your career. Well, you know, yes. what you do is a little bit bigger than just your career. And I think it's important for us to, you know, to think about that. So, you know, as it relates to examples of intersectorial collaboration, you know, we can talk about, um, you know, some of the, the issues we're facing today, uh, right, uh, in our nation yes. with uh, racism in America and uh, classism challenges, uh, with yes. the growing income inequality and the funding crisis with our national debt, uh, all big issues that we all face. And I think we often look to the government to solve these, right? We, we all just pay attention to our elected officials, uh, you know, when election season, election day comes, and we just, we look for our party signs. All right, who's the Democrat running? Who's the Republican? Oh, I have a few choices of Democrats and Republicans. Okay, I'll pick this one, right? You know, how many right. of us actually do our research and, and, and really learn the candidates that we want to, to, mm-hmm. uh, to elect? Um, but, and, I, and I think we then obviously rely on those government uh, officials and representatives to represent us and run, run, run the government, right? Make, make, things, make things good for us, because what do I have to do? I have to go back to work. I have to go back to Pfizer. I have to go back and, you know, uh, and, and, and be a parent and be a father and be a husband, et cetera. But in reality, these, these issues, right, um, uh, mm-hmm. they require governments, businesses, and citizens to come together to solve them, right? Yes. You know, let's take our current funding model, Catherine, for education. Today, we fund education based on tax dollars from local municipalities. Mm-hmm. Right. If you have an affluent town, they're going to be strong tax tax dollars, uh, right. which leads to better schools and stronger education and higher success rates for good paying jobs from the students that come from those communities. But what happens if you are in uh, a community that is not affluent with the tax base is right. lower? Right. I think in our area here in southeastern Pennsylvania, I often think of Chester, Pennsylvania, yes. right, a town that uh, you know was was uh, was at its at its at its zenith, you know, uh, probably 50 years ago. Um, and since, since then has really just seen a, a big slide. Uh, yes. And, you know, next door you have the town of media, which is absolutely bursting at its seams with growth. And yeah. how can we have, you know, a better example of a tale of two cities, right? <laughs> Where we, we all expect the, the government, okay, well, you know, that's a problem for Chester to deal with. And, oh, you know, mm-hmm. media, we have our own problems uh, to deal with. No. These are problems for all of us to deal with, right? And and I think when we when we don't go beyond our sectors, uh, when we yes. don't think about collaborating across, 
we have some of the spillover uh, of things we're seeing today, right? With the racism in America that, you know, not as though it hadn't existed, but, but it's certainly bubbling to the forefront right now. It's income inequality, which continues to, to, uh, to grow um, and is, is one of the elements of structural racism that is funneling into this, um, yes. this spillover of racism in America that we see today uh, and the like. So I think those are, those are some of the ways where we have an opportunity to collaborate across sex uh, better than we have been. Uh, and I, and I, I'm hopeful that we will all take um, better ownership of the responsibility to do that. Yes, I, I just wanted to comment because I really like the point that you mentioned that we are more than our career. And I think that's kind of a, a trap in some respects, especially in the US, it's, it's kind of the go-to when people ask you, you know, who are you? The, the very next question or where you're from, the next question is what do you do? And that's, that's right. the case in other cultures. Um, I've spent some time in Latin America and I remember it took weeks and weeks before people actually knew what I did. I was getting to know them as a person. Um, right. so I, think, I think this point about we're so much more than just one identity can help us with, you know, intersectoral collaboration is, is even more than an organizational level. It's what happens at the individual level. And I love the fact that you mentioned, I'm a husband, I'm a citizen, I'm a global citizen. You know, I also okay. work, but I'm all these other things. I'm, I live, I live in media, but I care about Chester because Chester's neighbor. That's, right. me. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Absolutely. Catherine, you know, I, I, um, I, I, I think about often, you know, all of those various identities that uh, that I have right uh, and that we all have right I'm just using, yes. I'm speaking now so I'm speaking of my of myself um, and um, you know my, my parents are from Ghana West Africa right yes. and so I but I'm a I'm an American I was born and raised here in the US but you can imagine you know when I when I came home uh, there was the, the cuisine wasn't American right and so I'd go right. to school and talk about the things that I that I ate for dinner and my friends would say, well, I certainly didn't have that, right? And, and vice versa. <laughs> uh, right? And so there, there, are just, there are so many aspects to us, and it's important for us to really think about those and bring all of those to bear uh, as we problem solve together. Um, you know, I, I also, you know, comment on this concept of intersectoral collaboration on uh, one of the biggest challenges I think we have, and you heard me reference income inequality, you know, earlier. Um, yes. You know, when you think about solving problems like income inequality and racism in America and structural racism, uh, et cetera, you know, all folks have an opportunity. You know, corporations have an opportunity yes. to, to do better here. Individuals have an opportunity yes. to do better here, right? Um, you know, corporations, uh, if you're a public company, you're often com concerned about the stock market. And it is important, right? We have shareholders that rely on us to be good stewards of their, uh, their, their cash so that they can do good things uh, with their money. And it is an important responsibility uh, that must be taken seriously and corporations do. Uh, make no mistake about that. At the same time, we have to recognize 50% of the stock market is controlled by the top 1%. Uh, and, and that uh, probably 90% of it, uh, the stock market is controlled by the top 10% of income earners, at least in the U.S. And yeah. so when we, when we put those together, right, that stock market can go up and up and up and up and affects virtually no one. Right, one out of ten people, uh, in terms of rough numbers, right. So, you know, so so what do we do with that as as governments, as businesses, as individuals? You know, I can, I can tell you myself. Um, you know, my kids go to a school district that's that's virtually all white. Um, right. That's how they're growing up. So my wife and I, we have to make deliberate decisions to ensure that they have the opportunity to interact with people of different races, with black yes. people, African Americans, with with folks who are in different classes. Yes. Um, uh, with folks who uh, come from different backgrounds, right? So I, I've been getting my hair cut in the town of Chester for the last 20 years. You know, you've seen my hair, Catherine. I don't have much of it. I can do my <laughs> own haircut <laughs> myself, right? I have an all-even uh, haircut, right? A Caesar, as we would say, uh, in our community. And, um, you know, it doesn't take much to cut a Caesar, you know, hairstyle. No face, very easy, <laughs> right? But I go to Chester and I take my kids with me when I go. We all get our hair cut there. That's lovely. When I go, I try to, I try to buy uh, gas and fill up my tank. I try to go to the yep. local convenience store and buy something. Yes. I, um, I, one of the barbers in the barbershop that I go to, um, uh, he sells drinks out of his um, a refrigerator next to his chair. Mm -hmm. And I make sure that every time I give my 
uh, one of my kids who's with me, but my two sons or, or my daughter, she happened to be with us. I give them a $5 bill. They go and buy drinks for each one of us. And he's, he's the best. He always gives the kids the wrong amount of change and forces them to do their math calculations and to interact with him. Uh, oh, that's and so great. it's important for them to recognize that, you know, uh, w w when you go to, to Chester, you're going to see visual differences than what you see in your hometown. But it's important yes. for you to recognize that these are our people. Yes. There are the, the citizens of the United States, the citizens of Pennsylvania. There are black people. They are yes. our citizens of the world. And you will not see anyone different uh, than yourself. And so when you think about issues that are in Chester, those are hmm. your issues, right? Think of those as sex, right? That's those right. are your issues to solve. It's not their issues to solve. When you see issues that are in India, those are your issues to solve, just as it is with folks, even hmm. though they're not... Americans, not our country, right? So it's important for us to really think about how we intersect uh, in all walks of life. And I think it's, uh, it's an important lesson for all to, and a responsibility for all of us to, to carry. That's, that's such a great experience, Anza, for your children. And ultimately, I, I, again, I just love what you're saying about, you know, these people are not only Americans, they're, they're our people, but they're ultimately um, our friends too. And I think you know, at the, um, when we think about these issues, these really large structural issues, and yes, organizations can help, there is a lot that individuals can do to also break down walls and to okay. ensure that we're, that we're looking at the world differently and through other people's eyes. I think part of the, the conflict that we face is that people truly don't get to understand another person's point of view or their background yeah. or backstory. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's where it requires us, um, Catherine, in my view, to, to force ourselves to be, to be uncomfortable, right? Because often yes. we don't take the time to understand another person's point of view because we're, we're used to being comfortable, right? And we, yes. we like to be comfortable. And, you know, often um, as minorities, I can speak absolutely as, uh, as a, as a black person in this country, you have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable in order to progress. And I think it requires yes. all of us to think about how we can you know, mm. push our limits, um, you know, to do that. You know, during this, um, this crisis, uh, yes. I can tell you that my, my paychecks haven't stopped. Uh, I've been at home and nobody has gotten sick. I haven't had to go and, and, and brave uh, the front lines. Uh, mm. But that doesn't mean that that I can't empathize with those who, who have been affected uh, financially yes. and who have had to brave the front lines and expose themselves to risk every day. Um, and my wife would literally, when the, when the coronavirus shelter in place um, time started in, in mid-March, she would literally wake up in the middle of the night uh, frustrated and, and upset about the fact that we've got to do more. And uh, we talked about it and she led us and basically starting with a, a friend in our community, um, a campaign to collect money for families that were significantly impacted, right? So those, those students uh, or, or who, who are on reduced lunch in our community um, or who, who, who just simply need aid in order to just keep food on the table. Uh, and it started as just a person, and I know my wife. My wife, is a, she's a firecracker when it comes to executing <laughs> anything. And you, you've met Kelly, so you know. She, I've she met, oh, she's, she's, she's delightful, yes. And she, yeah, she's, gonna get, she's gonna get the job done. She's gonna get the job done. So, so when, I, when she said she was gonna raise money uh, with, uh, with one of our, our, our local friends uh, and neighbors, uh, Amy Rubin, she said, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking, oh, you know, doing well would be raising $1,000, but knowing my wife, you know, they're gonna raise $3,000, maybe even five, right? And within, Two weeks, Captain, they had $18,000. Amazing. And that grew to $25,000. And, and at this point, what, three months out, they have raised over $50,000. Wow. And think about that. Right? The, 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 this was all the effort of two individuals who yes. just put their minds together, right? So forget the government, forget businesses. They said, we have people, right? Our brethren in the area that need support. And yes, the CARES Act from the U.S. government was being negotiated at the time and will certainly provide support. Um, but, but we can do more, right? We can do more as individuals. Yes. And the more we do as individuals, the less the government has to do. That's exactly so they really, right. They did a great job of raising money. But even think about the concept. 
when you raise money, it's not your money. Certainly, they contributed, you know, themselves from from our family's uh, uh, money in terms of donation. But but it was the community. The community came yes. together as yes. individuals to donate money, not for themselves, but for members of the community uh, that were hurting. And so, you know, just think about what happens when individuals step up so that the government can do less. What happens when businesses step up so the government can do less and vice versa. Um, and how if we broaden our definition of our mm. community, how much more impactful we can be, right? And I think that's the opportunity about intersectoral collaboration that, that starts to expand beyond just the private and the public sector, but really to individuals as well. Yes, um, and I, that, is, that is a wonderful example. And um, I think it's amazing that all that money was raised. It sounds like you have um, she's, she might even be um, running, starting her own nonprofit soon. <laughs> they did, actually. They did. They, they oh, now, did they? They now formalized it as uh, the Circle of Giving 2020. That um, is wonderful. So it went from an idea to folks collecting money to an official organization. Oh, wow. Many donations. It's really, it's really amazing. It's really amazing. And I, I think that, you know, there are, there is a desire for people feel like they are part of something larger. And I think, you know, we spoke about this earlier that the coronavirus, because people had to shelter in place and, and live a little bit more in solitude, this despair, right. it, it's, it's just not, it, it's not a natural state of affairs to, to live that way. And so this desire to want to help people, I, I'm hopeful that that's actually going to be enhanced um, when all of this is, is said and done, because we really need to live alongside our brothers and sisters, that we, we cannot do it alone. And so what your wife and her friend tapped into is just that power of, of wanting to give back and also suffering with others. You know, the word compassion, um, the root is to suffer with. And, you know, there are people out there who do want to suffer with others to help raise them out of the difficulty that they find themselves in. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we're all in the end, you know, as humans, we're social beings, right? So we've yes. been sheltered in place with our individual selves, with our families, but there's always this desire to go beyond. And I think we yes. have to listen to that, right? Um, and really, uh, and really do our part with, you know, in, in, in our public administration program, we learn about social contract theory, right? And we talk yes. about uh, Rousseau and Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. Yes. Even John Rawls and how they, you know, they have advanced the theory. But it, but it, but there's this element of us needing to interact with each other and do our part, you know, for, yes. the, for the greater good. And when we do that, I think there are benefits. Um, there are benefits to us. So let me ask. So along those lines, uh, the beautiful story that you just shared about your wife and and the giving circle. Let's talk a little bit about specific ways that you think individuals and organizations can address the racism um, and social unrest that's currently affecting our country. What does actively working together look like in 2020? Um, and if you also wanna talk about some of the ways in which Pfizer is addressing the issue of racism, that would also be um, highly welcomed. Sure, absolutely. I, you know, I, think, I think we all have a, we all have a duty uh, I'll start individually, and then I'll come to, to Pfizer. Uh, individually, I think, you know, think about those, some of those stories I just told, um, you know, with forcing my kids to go into a, a community that they wouldn't necessarily constantly interact with. You know, when I think about my own interaction circles, Catherine, you know, on, a, on, a, on a weekly basis, on a daily basis, on a monthly basis, on an annual basis, the number of white people that come to my house, the number of black people that come to my house, Hispanics, Asians, it's countless, right? Now, obviously, coronavirus times have changed that. Um, but put that aside, uh, we are constantly interacting with folks of different races, just the way that our interaction circle is built. And it's yes. the same, going to other folks' houses, having them over for dinner, having folks, uh, uh, going to folks' houses for dinner. We have a very diverse interaction circle. But if we all, as individuals, and we'll just focus on this country, right? If we all challenge ourselves, how diverse are our circles? Right? How many yes. black people are coming over to our dinner table uh, for dinner? How many black, how many, how many uh, black people's houses uh, for, for my white brethren are you going over to for dinner? That's and right. if, if, that, if that number is low, I think that you have some bias, uh, perhaps some prejudice, not necessarily racism, 
but that's just built into your interaction circles in your life. And it's important mm-hmm. for us to, to challenge that uh, as individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we all have op- situations in which we are privileged. Uh, as a male, I recognize that uh, I am in privileged position than, than female uh, in, in, in different ways. And I recognize that I have a responsibility when I hear uh, other males that I'm interacting with in my interaction circle speak disparagingly about women mm-hmm. uh, to stop that behavior, right? I try to treat yes. my wife as a queen, treat her with respect, but it's not just enough for me to do that. When I hear folks who are not doing it, I've got to hold mm. standards, right? I've got to be anti-misogynist. I've got to be, um, I've got to, to be a supporter uh, of the Me Too movement. And it's the same thing with racism, right? For yes. our, white, our white brethren, uh, it's not enough to just say, well, you know, I'm not racist. So, you know, those people out there that are the problem, no. Check your interaction circles. How diverse are they? Uh, when you are with your family and your friends, what's the language that they use? How do they talk yes. about black people and other racists, right? And, and, and you can't just not be racist yourself. You have got to be an anti-racist, right? <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah. And I think that it's important for us to, to, as all of us, to think about things in that, that way. That's how we make progress. So I think individually, I challenge us uh, to do that or individually as, as governments, local governments, state governments, national governments. I think there's a responsibility to, to foster uh, conversation um, with yes. diverse groups, right? With, with different sects, individuals, yes. public sector, the private sector. And often governments do their work through their subcommittees, right? And their, their, their councils. But, but there's an opportunity for us to just challenge how public administrators and uh, government officials do our work, and how can we engage when we talk about income inequality and we talk about racism in America? You can you can get councils together with local businesses and, and regular citizens that can be commissioned to do that. Well, you know, yes. it's a little different than the normal way that we work, um, but that's the way that we come together and we force folks to interact and we have these courageous conversations about topics that often Catherine Wright are a bit uncomfortable. But the more we talk about them, the the um, the less uncomfortable they'll be. And the more we will become comfortable with that uncomfortability that I talked about earlier. You know, for corporations, I think, uh, you know, the responsibility goes with, you know, just uh, to whom much is given, much is expected. And, and mm-hmm. I'm proud to say at Pfizer, I think that we are living up to that uh, very strongly. You know, our CEO has came out and made a stance uh, against racism and has talked about um, the good work that we're doing. And I can tell you, uh, you know, I, I'm a leader at Pfizer in our global black community, which is one of our CRGs, mm. right? We have CRGs, mm-hmm. colleague resource groups. I think some companies call them ERGs or employee resource groups. Some even call them BRGs, business resource groups. But they're affinity groups around uh, 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 different minority groups, right? You have one for the uh, women's uh, minority group. You have one for the LGBTQ community, mm-hmm. African-Americans, Latino, Asians, et cetera. And so I'm a leader within Pfizer for our uh, global black community um, a CRG, and our CEO has made it a point to come and have conversations with our CRG uh, to ensure that we are not just acknowledging that there is a problem, but talking about how we can actually make impactful change um, to, uh, to improve the problem uh, and, and, and hopefully and sooner rather than later eradicate it. So I applaud those. I certainly applaud our CEO, Albert Borla, for the good work that he's doing, but I also applaud all those companies whose CEOs and leadership teams are accepting the challenge, right? And these are topics that are not typical uh, in corporate America, um, right? We talk mm-hmm. about business, we execute our work against our mission uh, and try to bring our visions to life. Uh, but but we've, we're now expanding the conversation. I think this is where the power and the value of intersectoral collaboration really is at its best. Yes, and it, I, I love what you said about that everyone has a role to play and everyone has an opportunity. Um, in this. And I think your discussion about the interaction circles, who are we interacting with, is such an important question to ask because I do think because many people aren't interacting with people who are different from them, there's a lot of misunderstanding. Um, and, And I think sharing a meal is probably among the best thing you can do to interact with someone. Um, it's such a humanizing experience. It's a shared experience. Um, bringing people into your home. There's, you know, there's an intimate nature to that. But then I think you going from the individual to the organizational, some of the same tactics are still 
being employed in this interaction, in these interaction circles, whether they're the ERGs or BRGs, but also at the corporate level, it's like, it's asking all each, each and every one of us, what can we do, as you mentioned, to make impactful change? And I think to, to me, that's a consolation because each person has a unique role to play in this um, yeah. really, really important issue. Some people may be CEOs, other people may be mothers. We all have a role to play in dismantling, um, you know, this, this really um, terrible stain on America's past and really trying to break the hold. And, and, not an, and again, it's not enough to simply say, well, I don't do that. I don't engage in that behavior. It's, it's important to denounce that behavior as well. That's right. You've got to be anti whatever. Anti-racist. In, in this case, racist. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you for saying it that way, Catherine. And I like, I like the way you talked about it as, as a stain on our, our past, as Americans, as all, all of us, right? I'm a proud American. Oh, and it's a stain yes. on our past. But, but, it, but, but when we open up the dialogue there, right, when we open up the dialogue, we get past the, the person who's chanting Black Lives Matter and someone against them is, is chanting, yes. chanting All Lives Matter, right? You know, which we know that isn't helpful. That certainly is never right. helpful, right? Uh, right. Uh, we're, 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 not, we're, not saying, we're not saying that all lives don't matter. We're saying that, that Black lives matter too, right? If, if yes. you're, I heard this analogy recently um, where someone said, imagine if your, your dishwasher were broken and you called the repairman to come in. And uh, as you came in and you talked about your dishwasher and, and he started looking at the refrigerator and the stove and the microwave. And you said, no, I need you to focus on the dishwasher. Said, no, 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 no. All appliances matter. All appliances matter. <laughs> be infuriated, right? No, we get it. Oh, certainly all appliances matter. But right now, my dishwasher That's a great matters, analogy. Right? Right now, Black Lives Matter. So I, I, I That's know a great analogy. talked about that example, but whoever came up with it, thank you for it. I've been using it frequently. But, but I think, you know, there's this responsibility that we all have. And when, when we're able to have that dialogue, Catherine, right, mm -hmm. when we're at each other's dinner table, we go from the shouting Black Lives Matter to All Lives Matter to, okay, how do we solve this together, right? We are at a stage yes. now where we're tearing down statues that have been yes. up for years, some of which yes. were, you know, boggles my mind. Who thought it was a good idea to ever put that statue up? Agreed. Others, you know, we could have a very robust conversation and dialogue about whether we should take it down, right? And, yes. and I know actually when you and I had a, a conversation, yes. you know, uh, before, you, know, you were talking to me about uh, some good approaches that uh, folks who come from communist countries have taken and That's that you right. see on your travel where they've done certain things with, with uh, monuments. But, mm -hmm. but I think it's important for us to have the dialogue, to hear each other. Yes. And, uh, and we only get that when we, we open our ears and have our different sectors, including individuals, including white people and black people and Hispanics and Latinos, come together at each other's dinner yes. tables and in various circles to have dialogue, right? It does. It really, st it starts with respect. It starts with um, hospitality. It starts with friendship. And I think, um, you know, if, if that's not part, if we're not going outside of ourselves to really understand people who are different from ourselves, I mean, I think about the statue situation in particular, you know, I think about if, what if I lived in the South and across the street from where I lived, there was a park with, with Confederate generals, and I had to walk by that park every day. And, and I'm a white person, but imagine I was black, you know? And, you know, that would be, that would be a tough walk every day to go to work, um, to be able to, to have to see that. And so, you know, as, as we were talking about earlier today, countries um, like Hungary, when um, communism fell in the late 1980s, they made a decision because similar things were happening. People were tearing down statues of, of Soviet leaders and you know, symbols of communism. And the politicians decided, well, let's definitely move them out of the capital. Let's definitely move them out of these public spaces, but let's keep them because we also wanna be reminded of our past and we don't want this to happen again. And so they created a space called the Memento Park, and you have to take a bus to get to it um, from Budapest. It's a short ride. And all of the statues from the Soviet Revolution are, are preserved, not all of them, but the ones they could preserve are there. And you pay a fee and you kind of walk down history lane and a historical context is given. 
And um, again, it's, it's a different approach that do we have sure. to keep the statues or tear them down? Maybe there's a third way is to say, move them out of the public domain and put them somewhere we, where we can have a proper context to understand why these statues were, you know, developed in the first place and what they mean to, to people. That's right. The Absolutely. Pain, and the pain that, get them. that people feel. I love that. I love that example, Catherine. And I think that that's, um, that's a strong point, right? It's not binary, but that only, that, no. that the choice isn't binary, right? That's what I mean. But that's, that Most dialogue aren't. and action. <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. What I'm realizing, but most choices aren't, but they're pre presented to us as binary. And then you right. feel like you have to go onto one side or another. And I love your example because I think your example, your discussion of being at the table really breaks down the binary because right. you're, you're basically saying, okay, the binary is out here. We're in our separate corners. We're going to bring the people in the separate corners to the same table. And That's now exactly we're going right. to have a real conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's it. Absolutely. The choice is not binary, but that That's dialogue right. is what leads us to find the tertiary uh, and other choices. That's Absolutely. right. Yeah. So let me, let me end our discussion um, or this really rich conversation on so I've learned so much uh, with, you know, this question about public service. Um, I know that you alluded to, you know, public service, um, and the, the role that um, government and business plays in the intersectoral collaboration um, initiatives. But the field of public service is um, as diverse as it is vast. And what are some of the key takeaways of intersectoral collaboration and living, actively working together that would be pertinent to the work of public administrators? Sure, yeah. I, you know, I think, um, I think that you know, as we as we talked about, we really need to challenge ourselves. Our public administrators need to continue to challenge themselves with all the great work that they're doing. Right. In many respects, Captain, our public administrators are on the front lines right now um, with uh, with the racism in America, and the social unrest, and yes. COVID nineteen, and they're they're kind of the unsung heroes. Right. We yes. we need to praise our doctors and our and our healthcare practitioners, which we see all the time. Uh, but the public administrators, administrators are also trying to deploy the police force and know when not to deploy the police force. And, and when, do we, when do we have the police force go there to, almost to protect the protesters? Um, so so there, are, there are so many things to consider here. But I think it, it's important for us to, and our public administrators, to think about opportunities to engage businesses and individuals more in solving the problems that we face. Right. Hmm. You know, I, I talked mm -hmm. earlier about yeah, referencing income inequality and racism in America and, and our, our, our class challenges. Those are problems that often public administrators take on themselves. But there's a need absolutely to expand the solutioning mm -hmm. uh, to other sectors. Right. We have we all have a responsibility. I really believe in the concept of uh, greater responsibility, better living. Right. It's not that we individually need to do less and have our governments do more. No, we all need to do more. But when we do that, when we do that, it will lead to better living for us all. I think our administrators uh, need to challenge us all and hold us accountable to do that, but also create the circles that enable the dialogue to happen, right? Start, start, the, start the circles in public spaces, right? Imagine if we had public spaces where the dates went out on X, Y, or Z dates, come and have a public discourse, um, yes. you know, that's a moderated conversation between uh, two, a Democrat and a Republican having a dialogue on an issue in a, in a, um, in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way that is non-confrontational, right? Where we're really talking about the issues. We're gonna talk about uh, Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter in a way that is open, right? Think about our public officials, their opportunity to do that and engage businesses and individuals um, uh, in things like that. Think about income mm -hmm. inequality and, and the ability for our public officials and public administrators to be the ones um, who are bringing the various sectors together um, and encouraging us all uh, to broaden our interaction circles, right? You know, when I when I think about the coronavirus crisis that's happening right now, um, you know, as you mentioned, I work for Pfizer, and I, I can't tell you how proud I am that Pfizer is mm -hmm. one of the companies in the hunt for the vaccine, right? So we are actively developing right now a vaccine um, to address the coronavirus. We're doing it in a collaborative fashion, right? So we're collaborating with a smaller company, BioNTech, 
to develop mm. our vaccine because we both bring different things to the table. We are, our, our CEO and, and various leaders are meeting with the government, right, to be briefed on issues. Um, and we're, we're certainly not taking any government money because we, 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 we know that we can do it on our own, but we yes. are developing, uh, working to develop the vaccine. And through this uh, intersectoral collaboration, obviously we being the pr- uh, private sector and uh, the government obviously representing the public sector, uh, we're all trying to address something that's affecting many individuals, right? If we had a vaccine, we would not be sheltered in place right now. We would be back to school and back to uh, uh, living our lives and back to uh, the summer camps that our children go to and the sporting activities that we love to watch. Um, so it's important for us to think about uh, intersectoral collaboration and to live it. Uh, and I think our public administrators can certainly help facilitate that, but each and every one of us, whether we are uh, part of the private sector, or just individuals have an opportunity to push ourselves to be uncomfortable, step up, and take greater responsibility. And I think if we do that, there'll be better living for all. Well, that's such that's such an excellent way to to end this conversation. And um, I don't I I can't agree with you more, Ansa. And I love also your discussion about you know being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, and it seems to me just taking the example of, of your wife and the friend and starting that nonprofit, that starting at the local level is, is where we can begin. I mean, all of our focus tends to be on the federal level, but where the action and where the work needs to be done is at the local level in our neighborhoods and our communities. And if we could all start there within our families and communities, imagine what can be done, you know, bringing these interaction circles, as you're mentioning, which I, which I love that um, term as well. So, so much we can be doing. And also the point is well taken that we don't need to turn away from responsibility, but to accept more responsibility. So I want to thank Rich, this very rich conversation and, and nuanced, and also looking at how we can help from a multitude of different perspectives and levels, which I think is is actually really um, rewarding. And it's also um, in some respects um, encouraging to us, again, going back to the fact that we all have different roles to play so that we all can attack this problem and these major issues in the ways that we are best suited and with the gifts and talents that we've been given. Absolutely, absolutely. Let us all think globally and act locally, right, Catherine? Yes, the, yes, indeed. It's going to be better suited for this situation. <laughs> indeed. Well, um, thank you again so, so much, um, Ansa, for thank you. to talk thank to you. Us. And um, I've learned a lot from this conversation. And I think that others who are listening to it are going to come away with a lot of great insights um, to, to really implement in their own lives. So thank you again for coming. Thank you, Catherine. It's been, a, been great to, to have this conversation with you. I look forward to the uh, more conversations and doing the work with you. Thank you. Yes, indeed. Thank you for listening to the VU Impact. Please visit us at publicadmin.villanova.edu to learn more about Villanova's Department of Public Administration and its programs.